Welcome everybody to the Banyan Books and Sound podcast in conversation. Today we are in conversation with Thomas Hubel. Thomas Hubel is a modern mystic and internationally renowned spiritual teacher whose work integrates the core insights of the great wisdom traditions with the discoveries of contemporary science. Combining somatic awareness, meditation, and transformational practices, Hubel facilitates and leads workshops, retreats, and training programs in the US and internationally. He is co-founder of The Pocket Project, a nonprofit organization devoted to interdisciplinary trauma research and human outreach in conflict zones across the world. He has developed the Collective Trauma Integration Process, known as CTIP, which we can apply to healing intergenerational and collective trauma in our own lives and in groups. So just so you can see, here's Thomas's new book, Healing Collective Trauma, a process for integrating our intergenerational and cultural wounds. Thomas, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you, Ross, for the generous invitation and the Benyon Bookstore, everybody who is part of it, Kilian. Thank you. Now, to give everybody uh, uh, a foundation of understanding, maybe you can just um, define for us what trauma is. Yes. Um, let's say... Um, when we, when we go through very overwhelming situations and very overwhelming is subjective, which means what might be overwhelming for you, I might judge as, as not overwhelming and I might call it, why do you make a big deal out of this? So there, there is a subjective element of, for example, small kids are much faster overwhelmed than grown-ups and sometimes grown-ups don't feel the overwhelm of their kids that's why i'm saying at the beginning overwhelm is always subjective so when i go through a traumatizing event an adverse event or an adverse childhood event or a shock trauma of an accident or there are many um light developed over thousands and thousands of years an intelligent function that helps us actually to survive better so we go into high levels of stress and we have the power to create kind of a fragmentation inside of our nervous system and number part it's like i often say it's like the tv you see a crazy war scene and then you take the remote control and you turn the sound off. And then you still, you see the, the movie is still, or the scene is still continuing and but without sound. And then you take the TV and you throw it into the ocean. And then slowly, slowly it disappears in the dark, but still playing. And so when we imagine like events like a Holocaust, a Native American genocide or a Native uh, genocide, a, um, any kinds of large scale 
woundings, there are millions of those TVs in our, even if the time has passed and it was generations ago, our collective unconscious stored the pain and it just, it doesn't just disappear. So trauma as a function to protect us in, in very overwhelming situations. So trauma is actually the trauma response that happens within us according to those situations. And which is a great evolutionary function to help us survive better. But if it's not being taken care, it can have a big toll on us. We might pay a huge price later on in our life. And so that's why individual traumatization is something I think that also science, neuroscience, psychotherapy, trauma science, social sciences starting like that there is a, a deeper and deeper understanding how that affects us and how we walk around with a lot of stress that gets triggered when we say situations are difficult, I had a very challenging moment. I, so we that stress gets triggered. Sometimes we overreact and we don't know why we are so charged or we simply are numb and we can't feel, we are indifferent. We, actually feel isolated, we feel alone. And at the foundation, trauma creates a sense of being separate. So we lose the feeling of being part of one web of life, you know, an interconnected whole, an interdependent system. And so that's why I believe, especially also when we practice a spiritual practice, which is a lot about inclusion and transcendence. So include and transcend and develop a um, transpersonal consciousness. I think trauma needs to be taken in account if we don't want our spiritual practice to be a bypass of this world, like that induces the feeling we can get away from here, that we actually can arrive more here and become more present in the world that we have been born into. So that's individual trauma, like as a, as a definition. And maybe the last thing that between the hyperactivation and the numbness, there's a fracture, there's a fragmentation. So it fragments our experience so that our minds, our emotions and our bodies do not express anymore the same information. And so that inner fragmentation is what we suffer from. And it has an effect through our relational awareness. It hurts our capacity to relate, to feel ourselves, to feel others, to feel the communities and, and so on. So there are many reverberations. So that's a, a short essence of trauma. Thank you. So it seems like a good place to begin for our audience to get an understanding to lay the groundwork for how the human nervous system in a healthy way develops before that how trauma affects the development of the individual's nervous system and then after that broadening the scope to look at collective trauma mm -hmm. so how does how does a healthy human nervous system develop yeah, first of all, that's why I also 
maybe rest in the short attunement that I believe that sometimes we look at our bodies as 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years old. And that is relatively true, but in fact, my body is an accumulation of my all the ancestry, all life that led up to my body, to my life here. So my body is actually very old, your body too. And I often say integrated history is presence and unintegrated history is the past. We often say history is the past and I'd say no. Integrated history is looking right now, is speaking right now, because most of the things that we speak about, people spoke about already. They are not so original. There's something that we might add through our life, but that's only a tiny portion because there were genius minds here that thought about many philosophical, spiritual, and rational things before. So it's not that we invented all of this and I didn't invent kidneys or a liver. So all of that was there before I came here and we have the humble pleasure to bow down to the greatness of our bodies. And so to our nervous system, my nervous system is an effect of millions of years of life, figuring out how to build a refined biocomputer that is an amazing internal communication system that has an amazing plasticity that can wire the world inside and, and can allow us to feel deeply connected to life. And I think that's like many of the great saints on this planet that walk this earth actually said the most enlightened state is actually the most natural state. And what they refer to is to transcend separation brings us back to a fundamental unification with life and consciousness. And so when we look at our nervous system, like we are going through every function, you know, it's when you look at children, they always find like the, the most amazing, the coolest thing ever. And uh, the one day it's crawling around in the living room is the coolest thing ever. It's much faster than laying in one place. You know, it's so cool that I can crawl around and, and be part of life and find out more about life. And then I, through curiosity, I go out and then I get scared. And then I wanna very quickly come back to my parents. But there's curiosity and then there's fear. Many people kind of hold fear as, a, as an emotion of separation when in our early years, fear is an emotion that brings us back into a safe zone, into the safe sphere of influence of our parents. And when parents are awake enough and, uh, and connected enough, their umbrella of influence feels the child and the child feels the parents. I feel you and I feel you feeling me is the basic building block of relating. And that's the basic building block of attachment. And attachment is the basic function that teaches us about relation. And if I can come back to my parents and sit on their lap 
and be safe. And my nervous system plugs into my mother's nervous system. So I get stressed because I get scared. I have stress and fear. And then I have relaxation and switching back into curiosity. And then my mother is pretty boring because I want the world is so exciting. So I want to go back and explore the world again. So when this movement works well, curiosity and fear turns into courage and safety. And then a child creates autonomy. So we create from a 2D. So when I see the child crawls around and then looks at the parent, and then we see children, they are hypnotized when they see a new coolest thing ever, which is walking. Walking suddenly seems so much more interesting than just a day ago. Why? Because my nervous system is ready and my body is trained enough to start to try walking. And then I try to pull myself onto my feet. And But in the moment I learn walking, I'm not walking in the park and talking to a client on the phone as a one-year-old child or whenever I learn walking. But I, it takes my whole computing power. So it's the subject of my consciousness is me walking. After some time, I can walk and be interested in other things. I can walk and do things. As a grown-up, I can walk, I can run, I can maybe run a marathon, or I can, I can have phone calls while I walk in the park. And which means every new level of development goes from 2D, an idea, it's two-dimensional, to 3D, embodiment, it becomes an ability, into 4D, it creates witnessing awareness and it transcends that function into the whole of myself. So 2D, 3D, 4D. 4D is that I can witness that function and it's a conscious process within my experience. And so every function, I often say, sends a musician to the symphony orchestra. So crawling, walking, talking, all the, all the, all the uh, delegates like sitting in the orchestra and playing their instrument. And if they are playing it well, then I call it grown-up perspective. In a regressive moment, one of them starts playing whatever he or she wants, and the rest hopefully will not get too disturbed so that I can still be, be a grown-up and be triggered. But if not, then the grown-up perspective collapses, and I will answer to you like a three-year-old person. In many intimate relationship fights, you hear like a five-year-old and a three-year-old trying to solve a relationship problem. If these two people are parents, so the, the, their children don't have a parent in this moment. They are kind of maybe even older than the parent. And so what I'm saying is that when, when our growth works well, every new function adds complexity and builds this amazing capacity to mirror the world, to wire the world inside and create an interdependent system between inside individual and the collective. It's an interdependent whole. That's when it works well. So when it doesn't go so well, then um, let's, let's say a child at level at age two gets traumatized. There's an overwhelming experience there's a fragmentation in the nervous system one part shuts down 
And, and I'm saying this, maybe some heard me say this before, but there's such a great, once I flew to Kathmandu to take a group into the Himalayan mountains, and we, I sat on the plane and I looked at the city and I thought, wow. I saw the city at night and there are all these this whole webs of light. And then one part was dark and in Kathmandu, they shut down the electricity because there's not enough money for the electricity. It's a very poor country. And, and then I thought, well, that's a genius explanation for the um, human unconscious because I, from the plain perspective, say I'm the subject, I'm the self. If there is a part in my body that is shut down where the electricity like the power is shut down, it's, it's a disembodied part in my body. I cannot tell if in that black spot in the city, there are people living, it's a part of the city, it's a lake, it's a, it's a forest, it's a mountain. I have no, no clue because it's, for me, it's just a black spot. And then I thought, well, the unconscious in our body is a network a communication network that has been shut down, numbed. There's a high level of stress around it, but inside there's a frozen developmental energy of the two-year-old child that is still stuck on the level of two. And in the trauma healing, we practice with many therapists and, and people that work with, uh, with, with clients and trauma and consulting. So, we learn how to navigate through our own nervous system because every one of us has a natural, what I call the elevator of consciousness. So, because every healthy grown up can feel a baby and we don't talk to the baby like we talk to our business partner. Why? Because my nervous system can tune in with the baby, with the rhythm, the voice changes, my body language changes and, I, and I'm in tune with the child. That's an important parenting function, but that's also an important function for every therapist. Because if I can feel the level of traumatization of my client, I offer a specific relation to help the client to open up that part step by step. And I'm not talking to only a 40-year-old in my office. I'm talking to a 40-year-old and to the two-year-old function that is frozen. And when it's frozen, it's a, it doesn't want to move. It doesn't get any updates. Trauma doesn't receive updates. The nervous system is like a wireless network in the body, and it's a fantastic uh, communication network. Every cell in the body receives like as a cell phone, and then the cell receives the cellular network which is supposed to be the higher organizing principle of the body. But if that cellular network doesn't work in certain areas, so no cell reception. So there is a downgrading of coherence in those areas of our organs, in those areas of our nervous system, in those areas of our emotional and, and hormone systems. And that creates imbalances. And it depends how long that's going to stay. And it depends how severe it is. But uh, I think it has deep health implications. So that's a little bit 
I mean, it's much more complex than I can talk about, <laughs> you know, talk about this for hours, but uh, just to give a summary, maybe that is a little bit also with images to, for us to understand a bit easier. Yes, thank you. So you talk about coherence as this, this wholeness <clears throat> where everything is communicating in sync. The other thing you talk about in the book is resilience and how there's an interplay between resilience and coherence. Can you comment on that? Yeah, resilience is the function from 2D to 3D to 4D. 4D means that I can stay related and feel comfort and discomfort. Let's say we get into an argument and we, we really kind of get tense about something. Maturity means that I can stay connected to the process and feel my own discomfort and not retract from the relation. So I, that's emotional maturity, that I can stay in the most pleasant and uncomfortable feelings that I have, and I will be present to them and include them in my conversation with you. If not, then my defense patterns kick in. And if the more I disconnect from you, the more chances are that we will escalate or repeat our argument uh, because it's a, it becomes a pattern. And so resilience, in my understanding, is the capacity to stay related to a major challenge. Now, for every human being, there is an intensity of trauma that is simply too overwhelming. And it will also, including our resilience, overrun us and simply hurt us badly. And that's, that's so. From a certain level of impact, even when I'm very grounded and I'm very uh, mature in myself, it will have impacts. But if I have already some attachment traumatizations and I have a new trauma as a grown-up, the, the, the weak links in the chain will break and then the regression, the trauma will hit me much more than when I rest in a mature self in an integrated self and I have the same traumatic impact. So resilience is basically based on my own maturity and groundedness. It's based on also relational resilience means the stronger communities or healing communities or very well related communities have a relational resilience. So there's a a wonderful um, woman that we collaborate with um, at the Tel Aviv University, a professor for psychology and also researcher for trauma and collective trauma here in Israel. And she says they made studies um, and um, and the uh, the most the two top factors of resilience is community and faith. Huh. Rivka Mashiach is her name. And so that the capacity of a community to create a strong relational network and an inner connection to presence and faith are incredible resilience factors in, in recurrent um, traumatizations, basically. And that's what I would also underline, given the work that I have done in the last 18 years, that like a sense of 
presence is a very strong factor of resilience and also healing and the capacity to create meaningful relations and create meaningful community relations is a very strong resilience factor too. And so there's inner coherence in my nervous system, the flow in my nervous system between the spirit, mind, emotions, body, ancestors, and so on. And um, there's the community resilience, which is the relational capacity. Yes, thank you. So that gives us a, a pretty good understanding for given our time for the individual, how they develop in a healthy way and how they take on trauma and how that trauma actually freezes them in a regressive state at the point of where that trauma happened. So what is the meeting point in terms of my individual development of a nervous system and, and how I take on collective trauma or, or karma? And also if you could comment on that interplay between the term karma and the term trauma. Yeah, karma is postponed experience. So let's say again, you and I, we totally disagree here. We, there's an escalation on this call. We don't agree. Like I shut down the computer. I'm totally pissed and I walk away. And the next half an hour, I'm just asking myself, why did you ask this question? Why did I, I'm exaggerating now, but we have this, we have this moment in our life where we walk away from an interaction you have with your spouse or your partner or your child in the morning at the breakfast, you have something that disturbs you and then you go to work, but you are sitting at work and you're still dealing with thoughts and feelings and body sensations of that former experience. So that's a small karma because we postponed the experience that we couldn't process when it happened. We postponed it, but then we need to process it. But when I sit at work in my morning meeting in my company, I'm still thinking about the interaction I had with my wife. So I'm not fully present to the meeting because I'm part of me is processing the past. I took a carry-on luggage to my team meeting. That's a small karma. A Holocaust is a huge karma that not only keeps me busy for half an hour, that keeps us busy, like impacts of wars keep us busy for generations. And the following generations will have to deal with the impacts as individual suffering until we integrate and digest the enormous impact those huge scars have on our lives. And so the notion of trauma in a way speaks a lot to the principle of karma, to the, the karma that is a past that needs kind of a future to integrate itself into presence. Because the past is split of history they couldn't be integrated. Millions of people in concentration camps couldn't possibly experience what they experienced, the horrors of those experiences. And a lot of information needed to be split off in order just to simply survive the day. 
that that experience is stored somewhere it didn't disappear and so when we talk about collective trauma we talk about that we are not the first ones that either experience trauma we have been born into a world that has been traumatized already like over thousands of years trauma happened and we came into this world so let's say somebody comes to you and says listen Ross like life-threatening inflammations and you look at the person and you see the person is completely wounded you would say listen yeah you I know I understand that you have these inflammations but you're totally injured you need to go to a hospital you need to take care of your wound otherwise you're you will have life-threatening inflammations so if the person doesn't feel or know that the wounds are wounds the person won't take care of it and then when I saw the collective trauma processes happen again and again in the groups so wow, we are living in an invisible field of traumatization that our consciousness, our waking consciousness has a very hard time to grasp. It's like you, you're living, you're growing up in an apartment. One day you come to visit me and say, and I never left my apartment. And then you say, hey, Thomas, how, how does the house look like that your apartment's in? I say, I don't know. I've never seen it from outside. Trauma is a structure, is, some, is a part of consciousness that nobody ever was outside of. Yeah. And so there is no, like even the planet we could see from outer space, we called it the overview effect. So it was a kind of a transcendental experience for humanity to see the living system that we are part of from outer space. It's a bigger perspective. But we don't have that when, we, when it comes to trauma, because we all have been born into the wounds of our ancestors, like our ancestries and cultures. And so there is something that by nature is hidden. Even if we see the symptoms, the wound is still hidden. And as long as we don't call that wound a wound, we will have life-threatening inflammations. And one of them is, climate, is our climate crisis. So what I'm saying is together, I think we need to create an awareness. There is an invisible force that cannot be dealt with through activism because activism is trying to push like new development into the world, which is great for us to change habits, but it's not great for trauma healing because trauma will create a backlash, a resistance, because trauma is frozen. But in that massive frozenness, there is a lot of learning that is frozen too. So if together as we spaces and societies, we can take care of that frozenness. Not only will many issues change, not only will the life-threatening inflammations of our societies that are called structural racism, that are called climate change, that are called all kinds of extremist movements and, and, and wars, not only will they slowly uh, decrease, and lose energy, our collective learning and capacity to be innovative 
and create new structures will flourish. That's why I became so passionate um, to, to speak about and deal with collective trauma because I really feel that there is something that even in meditation, the split off part might still be split off. Even if I can reach very deep meditation states, I might not have access to the trauma and I will still be split even if I rest in deep stillness. And so I think that there is something very powerful in that revelation. Absolutely. So that makes me think about spiritual bypassing and our need to avoid that in our, in our practice. I, I think probably a lot of our audience is interested in some sort of a contemplative practice. And so how do we look out for the signs that we might be spiritual bypassing whether it's as an individual or within the, the context of a spiritual community or institution. Right. The, the biggest sign is if there is any attempt to get away from this world, to get away from the cruelty of this world, to get away from the reality of this world, to get away from the beauty of this world, the, na the, the nature of trying to be somewhere else is bypassing because we are simply here and I believe our contract with the divine, our contract with consciousness and with life is to be here. That's why we all have been born and, and to live our purpose as wholeheartedly and as authentically as we can is our purpose. That's what life gave us. I often say all the millions of years of life accumulated into this moment. Like life gave us a pearl, the few generations, all the people that are alive right now, including, you know, all animal life and all plant life is like that's the pearl of life that the whole development of the history of this planet is in in the hands of everybody and every being that is alive right now it's an amazing achievement it's like i hand over to you a biocomputer that i developed over millions of years and i say ross with your life i hand this over to you improve it make it better develop it further but take care of it. That's the preciousness of life. And so if like living and spiritual development means that I, I become more present and I land more in this life exactly as it is. And that realness means also, like we often hear this sentence, that's another form of bypassing is I still have that pattern. And often I say, who is the still and who is the pattern? Because what does it mean? I still have that, so I shouldn't have that pattern. And who says that? So I am perpetuating in my language a split that already is the symptom of my traumatization. 
I often say our defense patterns inside are the childhood heroes of our development. When a child, for example, is, has been neglected or the parents were traumatized and the child tried to get the co-regulation and couldn't, the child is very stressed when alone. And the child gets very easily overwhelmed by the fear and the stress in the nervous system that cannot, that needs a parental nervous system to co-regulate in order to relax. If that's not possible, the child walks around with high levels of fear and high levels of stress and will contract the muscles, will shut down that stress and fear and push it into the unconscious in order to stay true to the purpose to the higher development, to create an inner coherence in the incoherence of the family system. So the defense pattern is actually a very intelligent function. We all did our best to avoid the pain or the suffering that we were in, in the given situation. Today, we judge that defense mechanism as something we want to get rid of, as a weakness, is something that we don't want to have because we're aspiring to be that kind of spiritual superhero that has no kind of bad feelings at all and is just light. But for many people, that split is like something that the Tao Te Ching makes very clear. The journey of a thousand miles starts from beneath our feet. The realness of our current evolution is the highway of our development. Where I am now, wanting to be more developed than I am is a trauma sign. Being ahead of myself is already a sign of more stress in my nervous system. Developing a lifestyle that burns more resources than I actually have and depleting my body, depleting nature around me is a trauma sign. So when you ask me about spiritual bypassing, we see, like sometimes we, we hear this, oh, like we want to be already there, but actually we are here. And to be real and authentic with our development is where we can heal the most, where we, where we can really give what we can give and we don't overpower our systems and other people's systems. And we, we see, we learn to respect the intelligence of life. That every weakness in my life is a process on a different level of development that I needed badly. Otherwise, I wouldn't develop it. And so the tension patterns in our body, the stress patterns in our bodies and psyches, and, and the, um, the defense patterns we cannot get rid of them. We can only learn to re-own them, include, and transcend them. That's, so, and that brings me more into this life. And it's beautiful that as spiritual practitioners, we hang out with people. It's like, I often say, when you, when you want to play soccer, you most probably don't go to the golf court or a place because that's for playing golf and you don't go to the tennis court 
but you go to play soccer with people that want to play soccer. And the same is for meditation and the same is for mystical studies. You study with people that want that, not people that constantly try to do something else. That's amazing. So creating sanghas and communities, even healing communities is fantastic. But that spiritual, my spiritual practice and communities lead to the fact that, oh, I don't, I cannot be anymore with unconscious people. I, I just need to be with conscious people because it's so painful to be with unconscious people. That is spiritual bypassing. That's not what our world needs. That's what, what we need if we don't look at our own shadows and at our own um, trauma history. Then we try to, to live in a more and more secluded aspect of life and we call it conscious. But actually the generosity that spirit and the embodied light that I bring through my practice and consciousness into life is actually a contribution to this world. And light energy is nothing one can have. It's only something we can pass on. And I believe healthy spiritual development makes us bow down in the places where we can learn, and makes us give in the places where we have something to offer. And if that, if that flow works, the whole mountain will be nourished. If I know where to bow down and learn, and if I know where to, to give and share and be generous, I'm receiving water and I'm passing the water on. And that makes me part of the big web of life. And so this, I think you're speaking to a very important question in trauma healing and contemplative practice when they're done well, I think totally support each other and are an amazing couple, like an amazing marriage. I'll just uh, shout out a reminder to our audience once again to, to put in your questions for Thomas in the Q&A tab. And we'll be getting to those in a few minutes. Um, what does it look like when a group gets together in the work you do with the CTIP, Collective Trauma Integration Process, with large groups of people? Can you walk us through how does that look? And you, you beautifully describe it in your book and you give step-by-step -step process for facilitators to follow and, and the requirements, the, the capacities that a facilitator should have for this kind of group. But for this context, just overall, what does it look like? What are we doing in that space together? Mm -hmm. yeah, first of all, we are creating, I think it's beautiful that we see, I believe, Human rights consist out of three rights. Right to be, right to become, and right to belong. Out of being, which is space, is becoming, which is energy. Becoming turns into structures and relation, which is belonging. So every human being has the right to be, to be in life, and to have space. Every human being has the right to unfold its own intelligence because it's God-given or life-given and 
when we create communities where we support each other's inmost intelligence, we, I bow down in front of your intelligence and you bow down in front of her intelligence. So we support each other's intelligence to grow because I know when you're at your best, the whole system grows. And that we create meaningful and honest and authentic relations because I believe our relational environment is the extension of our immune system. So the right to be, to become and to belong. And when we look at groups, we, we actually work with these three forces because being is often compromised by overdoing. So many people on the spiritual path regain first the right to be. So we, 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 we developed the space that we gave up on when we, as a five-year-old, took over jobs in the family system that weren't ours to do. To mediate between my parents is not my job. My job as a five-year-old is to be a five-year-old and to do what a five-year-old does. I'm not a mediator. But if I'm getting too scared because my parents fight all the time, so I will try to make peace between them. And I give up on my right to be a child and I become a doer. And later on, I become a mediator, I become a therapist, or I become a manager because I managed a lot of my siblings when I was a child because my parents didn't do it. And so in a group, when there's trauma, it's postponed frozen experience. And when we create space, safety, and relational coherence. So in, in, a, in all our groups, we start with this, we create space, we slow down, we create relational coherence through attunement exercises and various exercises, and we create safety. And it's like magic. When there is um, the right amount of those components, our nervous systems want to let go of the content. It was stored and frozen. So then there's a next phase where we hit the collective denial. I saw this very often in groups before we, before the content comes up, the denial, the suppression mechanism comes up in the group. And when we can stay present to that, then usually there is an eruption of material that is connected to the collective wound that is a shared wound in the space because many people of that culture carry that wound. So there's a detox mechanism, as you described it before, like that stuff comes up for many people, usually at the same time. That's why we bring often big therapist teams or assistant teams that help us to hold a safe, safe container and do some individual work if it's needed. And then, and then Often, and I described this also in the book, the CTIP, the collective trauma integration process goes into the next level. And then there is a voicing of voices. So I learned over time to listen to what are in more individual voices and what are collective or more archetypal voices of that collective trauma process. And when we highlight those, just by giving them space, repeating those sentences and making a space for those voices, there's a strong ripple effect. So we work a lot with the individual and the collective as an interdependent whole. And, um, and then 
so we go through that process until we have the feeling uh, enough has been surfaced through this group. And then we go into integration phases in smaller group works and we, we do some integration work at the end so that when the people go home that there is a kind of a, um, a full process done and we don't go home with a lot of residue. And we went through a whole arc uh, of that process because usually what we touch is kind of our common legacy. Like maybe your grandparents and my grandparents and her grandparents, you know, shared a similar past that was traumatizing or the ancestry. So it come, it's, it's something that we are standing in together. And um, so we did this first in the German speaking world and we expanded this to the Middle East and then we expanded it to, to North America and we worked on, then we worked on colonialism in the world and gender dynamics. And, um, we expanded it into various parts in the world. And, and since at the moment we are also, you know, my wife and I, uh, we created a nonprofit called the Pocket Project and we at the moment run, we run 23 labs with almost 700 people in the labs that are exploring around the world from Africa till North America, Latin America, Europe, the Middle East, Asia. We, we explore the local collective trauma in various labs and we're creating a meta-learning process. It's a supervised process where the whole system learns in different levels. Yeah, so we are, we are developing a global network of examining those massive historic wounds that we have been born into. And we, we are learning how to work with that the most creatively. And we use the, maybe the last thing, the, the principle that the future gives the emergence out of presence always has the power to rewrite the past. And so we are the future of our ancestors by turning towards what our ancestors turned away from. Often out of good reasons because it was too painful. We turn towards what has been turned away from. We actually have the power to rewrite our history. And not only that, Underneath the trauma layer, there's always an ethical restoration that's needed. And when we de-ice life, we come to a, a deep, deeply ethical question. And often a transgression of the ethical law of life. And so the restoration of that law activates the, the fabric of life and activates the self-healing mechanism so that wounds can heal. And then I believe something that's in the spiritual world often talked about is true forgiveness is when the past disappears. True forgiveness is when the storage of past and the transgression really gets integrated that much that relation can be restored. We can really look at each other again and see each other. And seeing and presence is the same. So when, when we restore the deep wounds, 
seeing can be restored. And when seeing is restored, we live again in one moment. So the past that actually we created together can be integrated into a new learning together. And that's why I think the ethical restoration is at the base of every trauma healing, there's an ethical restoration. Wonderful, thank you. Now we'll take a look at the audience questions here and people can feel free to keep sending them in. First question is from Catherine. She's wondering, how do you work with the ancestors? How can I look at my traumatized father or traumatized mother from the inside and or in the outside? Yeah, it depends a bit on our, like on our own wounds. So I often say like when we do trauma healing, usually we start with the most personal aspect and then we expand into wider circles of what we call in our work, wider circles of intimacy. So if I have been hurt by my parents, my father, my mother, and, and I'm suffering from the traumatization, so I first need some support to strengthen my own self so that I'm able to look at my ancestors in a deeper way. Otherwise, looking at my ancestors' trauma will destabilize me. So I think it's very important to have to strengthen my own core. But if that already happened, if that's already part of my own integration process, so then same, I mean, it also depends if our ancestors are still alive or not. But in general, I, I recommend doing trauma work, ancestral trauma work, and of course, collective trauma work in communities, in groups, because we often need the coherence building, the power of the group to support every individual within it, to get stronger to do that, to have enough resources to do the work. And I often say that inner coherence, coherence of a system is the power to integrate the fragmentation. So we always need to see if the system is strong enough to integrate the fragmentation. If not, we need to supplement coherence through a therapist, through a great network, through a healing community, through whatever kind of environment we need to strengthen our interior until it's strong enough by itself to, to do the work uh, more on my own or even support other people to do it. And um, and so when I, what I said before, when we tune in, like when there's a trauma that happened at age two, I can learn to travel in my nervous system and tune it to age two and do the work often with the support from the outside. And then we, we bring the traumatized part into a relational coherence with often a skilled therapist, for example, so that it can melt and and digest that we can digest certain parts of it the same attunement capacity i have inside 
because my ancestors are also part of my nervous system. We often see, I think we often see, especially in the hyper-individualized hypnosis, as I call it sometimes, that we are hypnotized by us as individuals and as me, separate me's. Me is the main actor in the movie. So then I, um, we see our nervous systems as very personal. But I believe my nervous system has a personal library. So that's the personal like set of books and library that I accumulated through my personal interests. You know, every one of us goes to Benyon and uh, buys the books that we are interested in. But we are, we, we develop a personal library within the library of humanity. And so my ancestors are also part of a much larger library that is not so personal. So I can travel in my nervous system uh, and access the information that the trauma of my mother, the trauma of my grandparents, when my grandparents went through the Second World War. So there are ways how I can learn to attune my nervous system to meet the trauma of my ancestors. But there we need some guidance because there's also a lot of imagination happening and there is real attunement happening. And I think it's, a, it's something that we can learn. And, and the more we practice that and the more we integrate ourselves, that, that muscle gets strengthened. And of course, for everybody who is a therapist or facilitator, that when we practice those competencies, they become very powerful support systems for other people to train that and to go through the healing processes. Because sometimes we need to open, like heal the ancestral wounding in order to complete in a way our own trauma integration. So they are entangled. And I have seen also sometimes that's also one way how I learned more about collective trauma when I saw oh, the trauma of my client is actually he was traumatized in a city that was bombed when many other people got traumatized at the same time. So there's an entanglement of the collective, the individual trauma. So it needs actually an awareness of both to heal. So there are many layers of the same thing, but in a way we learn to use the capacity of our nervous system to be a partner for each other's uh, healing processes. Wonderful, thank you. It looks like we, we're getting a lot of questions to do with family trauma, fam, unresolved family issues. So I'm just gonna pick one of them that might open up a doorway, which is from April. And April asks, how would you address secrets, shame and unresolved trauma within the family and the collective consciousness? Yeah, first of all, we need to say that usually in the family, since in the family we have genetic relations, usually it, it like the work that we need to do needs needs much more energy because of the genetic connection, which means through 
also through science, we see more and more how epigenetic transmissions of trauma. So there's, a, there's an element that sits in our epigenetic environment. And then we, through the relation to our parents, to our siblings, to other people in the family, we strengthen those inner tendencies through this often the same impact. So it makes the impact in us stronger because of the there's an environment that is already pre-traumatized and there is the trauma transmission in us and they amplify each other. In the good sense, they don't amplify each other, but they rewrite each other. So healthy relation can rewrite the tendency. That's fantastic. So that's why when we work on, on family systems, we often, one person in the system has a strong drive to to therapy, to do a spiritual practice, to open up that system and bring other influences in, in order to loosen up the cooking pot, the pressure cooker of the family. So often somebody needs to go outside, do some work, create enough impact so that the family system gets more change impulses through the genetic connection. So that's very powerful. But it works in both ways. Sometimes it's very stuck. Sometimes the change process can also affect the whole family system. In, in our groups, we have many, one person started to do the healing process. And in the next training, we had some family members of that person in the group because it started to induce movement in the family system. So that's great. And, um, and so with secrets, like with shame, I think it's very important that like the when there are secrets there is a lack of safety. We see this in in healthy attachment processes when children share their secrets with their parents it's a sign of a safe well-attached connection when children keep their secrets or parents keep their secrets because they already are wounded in themselves. So then it's, it's a lack of safety in the system. So what we do is when there are secrets is to look at the, the basic safety that allows us, like we reinforce the safety or we, we strengthen the safety in the system in, in the person that does the work or the system is open to do the work so that the secrets can come to the surface by themselves. It's like bubbles frozen. And when we de-ice the ice around, so the bubble can come up to the surface. And, the, and often secrets are being kept because the base is not safe. And so we need to strengthen the base and de-ice the base so that relation becomes more trustworthy and relation becomes more coherent and relation becomes more safe. And when relation becomes more safe, words can travel. When relation is more unsafe, words travel short distances. When relation is very unsafe, we are mute. And so 
since um, in the Bible we can see that the word is creation. Let there be light. The word equals creation. And so when when we as human beings hold our words inside, we block the creation, but we also hold it inside because something is not safe. And then one other aspect about that about the secrets is also that you know when somebody doesn't trust the remedy for that is not trust the remedy is a support to become aware why not trusting is intelligence because not trusting if a person doesn't trust relation and is more reserved is more pulled back is more kind of isolated the person always has a good reason we might not understand the reason but we might not be able to listen to that reason and the person often themselves judges him or herself as not functional not good not uh, communicative enough not being seen and feels constantly being left out and or left behind but not trusting is intelligence within the person's biography and and by just giving a support that not trusting can become a conscious process because some people try to trust then they don't trust and it doesn't work. It's frustrating. And then the person says, I can't do it and get even more frustrated because they try to do something that they actually don't do. When somebody is not grounded in the body, just trying to be grounded doesn't make a lot of sense. What makes more sense is to find out why pulling myself out of the body is intelligent. If I'm not in the body, it has a good reason why not. So maybe it's good to listen to that and then learn to find a safe place in my body to land back into. And the same is with trust, so that when I can consciously be withdrawn or not trust or be cautious, then I can slowly maybe create a new relation when somebody offers a safe relation, create that. And then I will feel, ah, I can open up more and more because I can also retract and I can open up. So then it, it's, um, it's an empowering process. Maybe we'll stop here because otherwise maybe we can have one that, more. That's wonderful. I mean, as individuals, as families, as communities, trusting that there is a wisdom inherent in trauma responses and exploring that rather than trying to justify stepping around it exactly exactly beautifully wonderful um we'll we'll take a little change of direction here because we are getting close to our time i think this will probably be our last group question and it's pertinent to present day around covid19 and how that's affecting affecting the world and our healing of collective trauma it's a question from lewis who asks 
how do we as individuals being separated by COVID work to heal our collective trauma? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I'll try to keep it short. But the, so the thing with collective trauma is that it's like a frozen ground, ice. And I often say when snowflakes drop into water, they become water. When snowflakes drop onto ice over rivers, they pile up and a lot of snow and more snow and more snow. So follow-up experiences, meeting our intimacy and vulnerability and openness are being digested as we go through them. We call it flow. Follow-up experiences landing on trauma pile up and create more stress and more ice less digested life, reconfirmation of the trauma holding. And so when we have a collective trauma and there is another collective stress factor coming, it, where we are traumatized, it's hard for us to digest the new collective stress factor according to our intelligence. So it will create stress in the system and not only stress, it would show the fragmentation. And that's what we see all over the world that polarization, fragmentation and crisis, we call it also crisis, is up and out because it was there before. So new trauma or new stress or trauma or stress, collective stress will hit the frozen layers where, where we are not frozen we can deal with it we call it challenge but the challenge is great because it makes us creative and it, we we will deal with it and of course for some people covid is a big trauma because there's a loss of family members there's a loss of there's a health threat there's an economic threat so there is a an actual traumatization happening and so our capacity to deal with the new trauma depends on our pre-traumatization, I believe. And, and when we, the more fragmented we are, the less we are able to deal with it. And so that's one thing. And the other thing is also with, uh, with the separation. When I feel that relation is safe and I feel grounded in myself, and even if I'm not connecting physically to other people, it will, it will not be pleasant, but it won't give me a sense of separation. But if I carry like already a wounding in myself, the separation, the physical separation from other people will actually be much harder on me, which it is at the moment for many people. And the same is also with what we are doing right now. That on the one hand, we can say the virtual medium it's just a 2D image. On the other hand, we can say, according to the mystical traditions, information is omnipresent, which means information is non-local. It's everywhere and in one place, which means that the when I sit here with Ross, when I use my whole body to feel 
his body when I allow my emotional intelligence to connect to his and I understand his cognitive questions and I see his relational capacities now and he sees mine and feels my body. My body is communicating with his body. Vice versa, I feel you and how you feel me. So even when we are alone at home and we create Zoom windows, like now, we actually can have a deeply attuned and felt relation. Even if we are now sitting most probably 8,000 miles apart, I can feel Ross's body pretty clearly. So there is like a, when we use our whole body to really relate and our whole nervous systems to really create synchronization, we can create warm virtual spaces that at least are the best that we can do at the moment. Since then, the technology is, becomes a blessing. It becomes an extension of our awareness and we can create warm holding spaces for people that feel alone, for people that feel maybe they suffer from the isolation. And we can actually offer this kind of spaces, attuned spaces, because in the moment I feel Ross in his space, his nervous system feels my attunement as safety. So I feel you and how you feel me. It's called neuroception. It's called that our nervous systems create a synchronization. And that synchronization is being registered by the nervous system as, a, as an offer of safety. So whenever somebody is stressed in our family at work, we just pay one or two minutes attention to how we feel the person as the person speaks. Something relaxes. If our children come and say, Daddy or Mommy, I'm scared. And, and we say, there are two different kinds of intervention. One is, oh, it's okay, it's okay, don't be scared. It's not so, there's no danger here. The other intervention is, oh, I feel that you're scared. Come to me and we will have a look together. The first intervention creates distance and rationalization. The second intervention creates emotional resonance and leadership. And, and that's what we can do also here when our relatives, our you know, family members, or when we work remotely from home, our colleagues, that we can offer that function through the ethers. And it's like a magic function where we can co-regulate each other and create safe and warm spaces, as long as we are forced to keep that social distancing. So we can bridge the social distancing by conscious, through conscious relation. We create warm spaces, even though we wear masks and we need to stay at home at times, locked down. Yeah. Beautiful, very beautiful. If you would maybe leave us with some parting words on our emergent future, as you call it. You say off a few times in your book 
which I'll show to everybody one more time, healing collective trauma, a process for integrating our intergenerational and cultural wounds. It's just recently out, available for purchase at banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com. And it's, it's a fantastic book. I get these books sent to me by Banyan Books and I often, after I read it, I send it back. This one I'll be keeping for reference. Mm -hmm. Now, you often say, you say a few times in the book that unintegrated past is destiny. And can you just send us with some parting words around that? How, when we don't integrate traumas from the past individually or collectively, we're just recreating that and tell us what an authentic or emergent future looks like. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. First of all, I love how deeply you read the book and, um, and um, yeah, in my understanding, what I've seen in the last 18 years with so many people and so many groups is that, and um, that, unintegrated history is not only the past but it becomes our destiny it means that we take the highway from behind us we put it in front of us and we drive it again and we call it future then we take it from behind us put it in front of us and we drive it again we call it again future so it looks like we keep on driving into the future, but actually we are recreating similar patterns, similar conversations, similar intimate relationship arguments, similar collective uh, arguments and political dynamics. So we are on many levels, our unintegrated past, given it's unconscious, becomes our destiny because it runs us. The decision has been made in the past and it hasn't been integrated yet. But awareness processes have the power to make those invisible forces visible, integrate them, like lend our life energy to the integration process. Like we are cleaning up the living room of humanity together. And by integrating the past, we regain a choice so that we are empowered to have a choice in a situation. We can say yes or no. And that's, that's very powerful. And so whenever we integrate the past, we, we become more present. We become more present where we are. And presence is actually the birthplace of the real future. The real future never arises tomorrow. It always arises now in a moment of insight, in an innovative moment, in a creative moment. That's where the future arises. And it's now, like Otto Sharma puts it beautifully, in the in theory U, in the bottom of the U, the future, we participate in the future. So I often call the split of... of past and future, as we look at it in the mainstream society, that's like the flat earth of long ago. We look back and say, oh, humanity thought one time that the earth is flat. And now we are believing in a concept of time that is actually 
I believe not true. The future is not tomorrow. The future is in the present moment an emergence. And in the mystical traditions, we call it, that's the potential light becoming manifest through us. So the sixth day of creation, when God created a human being, it's not that that happened. It is happening through us. We participate in that process. And that's the creativity that has been given to us to add something meaningful to the life that we're living. And that's the beauty of being like a human being and to be part of the, this kind of emergent and expanding world. I think every time we participate in emergence, we feel how uplifting that is. Every time we have inspiring conversations, we walk away and the neurons are gleaming and we feel inspired and we feel happy and we have great ideas. That's participating in the sixth day of creation. That's when we feel like a fragrance of the power that creates us. And so that's why I believe integrating trauma is actually opening up the future, not only for ourselves, but the future generations to come. Mama Subal, thank you so much for being here with us today and for all the wonderful work that you're doing around the world. It's, it's really amazing to see. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ross. It's beautiful. And uh, how you conducted this conversation is very beautiful. And how you immersed yourself in the, in the book and in the work is really beautiful. So thank you very much. And also, Benyon, for the generous invitation. You have been listening to In Conversation, a podcast. Banyan Books in Sound.